0: First Samuel, chapter 17, verse number 41. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day, unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth. And that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel... And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass, when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it. And the stone and the... and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. We'll stop reading right there. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts about the faith that David had. May we grow in that same kind of faith. May we have the expectation that David had because he fully trusted in the omnipotent God of heaven and earth. Bless us, we pray, for your sake and glory. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible which I use and study is a King James Version with notes that are written by Frank Charles Thompson. I use what is called a Thompson Chain Reference Bible. I've used it for 50 years. It isn't perfect, so I also employ other tools from time to time, but I don't see any reason to look for another Bible until this one completely falls apart, and it would probably be another Thompson Chain when I get one. The word chain refers to the way Mr. Thompson links verses together. For example, verse number 18 mentions cheese. If I wanted to study cheese, there in the margin is 2 Samuel 17, 29, where there's another reference to cheese. And if I go to that verse, right beside it, there's another reference to Job 10, 10, and so on. And beside each of those references to cheese, there is another number, 670. If I wish to hurry up my Bible study, all I have to do is go to the back of my Bible, go to 670, and we have there a summary of all of the verses that Mr. Thompson says uh, I need to have in order to study the word cheese in God's Word. Another example is faith. Thompson has four columns of references at the back of the Bible here, starting with 1200 and going to 1211. First, there are general references such as faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone, and other verses like that. After general references, there's a section under faith enjoined, with verses like, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. There's a section there called the blessings according to faith, and another one, aids to faith. And of course, there's a very important subdivision referring to salvation by grace through faith. That's number 1206. So a study of faith using these references could uh, take several hours and it would be well worth our time or my time to do so. But as I've said before, there are differences between theological topics like faith and faith's apt practical application and sadly when i go through mr thompson's references there's nothing that says this is how faith works because really there are not any scriptures that say this is how faith works in nice short little statements verse here verse there so how we transition between general references to faith and practical application of faith how do we do that It seems to me the best way to move from theoretical to practical is by looking at the biblical examples. We find them throughout the Word of God. When a human being like Jonathan or Joshua demonstrate to me their faith, that is something that I can bite into. That is something that I can sink my teeth into. Those people were just like me. They had problems, they had personal weaknesses, just like me. But they overcame those weaknesses by applying what they knew about the Lord in practical ways to say, let's deal with Goliath. Let's deal with this Red Sea problem. That's what I call practical faith. That is what I need. That is what we need. That is what Christianity in these last days needs to have. We don't need any more King Saul's. We need Jonathan's and Joshua's and Noah's. We need people of faith. People who will actually do something for the Lord. In trying to make this approach, we're forced to review some very well-known Bible stories. Whereas Thompson's 1206, lists six examples of great faith, all from the New Testament. We've looked at about ten from the Old Testament. So Mr. Thompson is not helping me out here very much. And even though we're looking at some of the details from different segments of Bible history, we're doing so trying to emphasize the faith of the man involved. It's not just about slinging a rock through the air. It's about what David expects the Lord to do with that rock. You've probably noticed, or I hope that you have, that several times in these Bible stories, I've just skipped over obvious things, things that are very well known about this particular event, because I'm expecting you to already know those. And it's not about slinging the stone, or about how much water was squeezed out of the fleece. What it's all about is how did this man utilize his faith? What did the Lord do in response to this man's faith? It's the faith of these people that I'd really like to emphasize. I'm calling this message gargantuan faith, but that's only to get people's attention. That's what I use sermon titles for. Sure, Goliath was a big guy. But David didn't need bigger or stronger faith to bring down the giant than Joshua did to bring down 20 ordinary Philistines. The crossing of the Jordan didn't require more faith than crossing the Red Sea because there was a surge of water, whereas the Red Sea was just standing there. One didn't require more faith than the other. It isn't about the size of the dog in the fight. It's about the size of the God who governs the fight. It's all about the Lord. We need just as much to trust the Lord to make that major decision in our life as was necessary to uh, cross the Red Sea or to cross the Jordan River. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Because Saul the king, didn't have the same faith that Jonathan, his son, had, Israel was only able to push the Philistines away for a while. They came back with a vengeance, bivouacking right in the heart of the tribal lands of Judah. Saul was able to pull together, or perhaps he drafted an army, and he brought them and they are facing the army of the Philistines, with the valley of Elah in between. This time, the Philistines brought a giant of a man with them in order to intimidate Israel. He was huge. Goliath was from the race of men who had terrified the spies for the well, no, lot, lot. lot. Before that, now, uh, so many years before in the days of Moses, this man was of the tribe of the Anakims, and he did terrify the faithless people of Israel even in Saul's day. As you will remember, the family of Jesse had sent three of their eldest sons into the fight alongside Saul. After several weeks with no action taking place, Jesse sent his youngest son, David, from Bethlehem with some food to take to his three oldest brothers and with a small gift to bribe the captain over those brothers. When David arrived, he saw everyone's eyes looking across the valley. Following their gaze, he saw Goliath And he heard the words of challenge that Goliath threw across the valley toward the Israelites. Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants of Saul? Choose you a man for you. Let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then ye shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When David asked why somebody didn't go over there and punch the guy's lights out, uh, his brother rebuked him ridiculed him with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. That's the only reason why you are here. David had left his many sheep, according to the scripture, in the hands of someone, well, capable of taking care of them. And there was no pride or naughtiness in his question, none whatsoever. And David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? After being invited to stand before the king and getting Saul's permission, David went down into the valley and a few yards up on the other side toward Goliath, who apparently was so unconcerned, he didn't even look at him or didn't see him anyway. Eventually, spotting the much smaller man, Goliath said, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? Apparently, he didn't see the sling in David's other hand. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Then David famously replied, I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts. I come to thee in the name of Jehovah, the God of Israel, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee. Then verse 48 says, And it came to pass. Two verses later, we read, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. This has very little to do with my message, but a friend of mine sent me a little, he sends me a cartoon every day. Sent me a little note yesterday, as it happens. It said, A rock in bad hands murdered Abel. A rock in good hands killed Goliath. It's definitely not about the rock, folks. I'm sure there is a political message involved in the little story. But otherwise, he's right. It's not about the rock. It's about God. It's not about David. It's about the Lord and what the Lord is going to do. This day, Jehovah will deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee. And it came to pass. Now, let me try to apply this chapter to us and to the day in which we live. How might we look at Goliath? There are several application options. Once again, as in some other illustrations, Goliath could illustrate a godless society residing in and dominating over what should be the Lord's kingdom. This is the promised land. What are these Philistines doing here? They don't belong here. Israel should have driven out all of the Canaanites and pushed the Philistines into the sea, but they didn't do it. We could use Goliath to illustrate the atheistic evolutionary thinking that invades not only the educational system of the United States or Western society, but virtually every aspect of our society. He could represent the powerful 10% that are pushing the LGBTQ agenda. He could uh, represent the, the woke movement or communism, socialism. Humanism. We might look at Goliath as a representation of an evil government doing everything in its power to make slaves of its citizens. Goliath said, if I prevail against your champion and kill him, then you will be our servants and you will serve us. That's what society wants us to do. Be ready to answer the phone and give this homeless guy all the food that he wants. Fill up this uh, motor home with uh, uh, 200 gallons of gasoline. That sort of thing. God, of course, could crush and silence these evil influences by flexing one of his fingers. But he hasn't chosen to do that because... God wants a David to step up and say, I'm going to do this in the name of the Lord. The Lord wants someone to step up. Sadly, those Davids and those Jonathans are not to be found very often. How might we look at Goliath? How about as an illustration of certain kinds of lost souls? Look at his ego, Listen to his bravado. He was living in denial of the God of Israel, whom he apparently knew to a small degree and said, I defy him and I defy the armies of Jehovah. He was defiant. He was arrogant. He was convinced that there wasn't a Christian in the world who could defeat his logic or defeat his strength. Your ideas about a recent six-day creation are ludicrous. They're out of date. They don't apply anymore. No one needs a savior today. We are all capable of saving ourselves if we choose to be saved. Give me a victim that I can tear apart. Goliath was a religious man, even if his religion was only a tool. He cursed David by his gods. This giant may have had as much faith as David, only his faith was in an empty, teetering, broken handed, idol god named Dagon. Goliath needed Christ the Savior, like everybody else. How could he possibly justify bowing and worshiping a God who is depicted as a fish with hands? Answer? Probably the same way that thousands of people today would have been out fishing instead of being in the house of God, but they're not there because they're at home bowing before the television watching the Super Bowl. This sinner, this blasphemer, this idolater needs to be reconciled to the true and living God. He needs to be saved. But like Goliath, he will fight tooth and nail to isolate himself from the omnipresent God. I wonder how Goliath became the Philistine's champion. It certainly wasn't through an earned Ph.D. in physics, Or a THD in some false religion. Judging by his words, he was relatively new on the scene. He hadn't been there before. This is the first time we run into this fella. He'd probably never gone into battle against Israel. Has he ever fought anyone except in simulations or against other Anakim or some of the weak Philistines? Why does he need all that fancy armor? Why does he need an armor bearer if he's such a big, strong guy? How is he the champion? It's all bravado. Generally speaking, the Lord's enemies are not as powerful as they picture themselves to be. I don't know how many times there have been people to whom I was trying to witness and they spit out a curse at me. Or described some sinful condition in order to offend me, push me away. It happens. It's all bravado. They're certainly nothing before God. And in truth, this big nine foot fella is a, a little guy in the sight of the Lord. And he's little in the sight of the man who approaches him in the name of the Lord. The world needs and God wants to employ men of faith like David to bring the cross to people like Goliath. And then there's David. Once again, we're talking about a youth. Once again, we're talking about a young man. He was something like the young men that the Lord used to ignite the Welsh revival. The first of those men, Robert or Evan Roberts, was 26 years old when the fire of God fell on him. David was the youngest son of Jesse. He was small in many ways. He was the smallest of the small. His eldest brother looked down on him for his youth and his inexperience. When Saul tried to put his armor on David, it engulfed him like a tent made out of mail. He wasn't a blacksmith. He didn't have those huge biceps. He wasn't driving a team of horses or oxen every day out plowing his father's fields. He was a shepherd. His only responsibility was to carry little lambs around his neck. Oh, what a job. He's a wimp. At least that's what some people thought. Who is this kid kidding, thinking he can go up against a nine-foot-tall, seasoned gladiator? But David had a pair of ears which could hear things that his brother and others couldn't hear. He heard Goliath slander and blaspheme the name of Israel's God, David's God. As far as this young man was concerned, that giant was already standing on a banana peel. He's going down for this. But it was not because David was stronger or quicker or more agile than anyone else. David wanted to go into battle with this blasphemer in the name of the God, the man blasphemed. David's got the advantage here. He fully expected the Lord to defeat this gargantuan man. David said to Eliab, his brother, and then to several others, Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause here? Absolutely. David's words and his questions were then reported to King Saul, but it wasn't reported by his brother. Others took that news to the king. Eliab's anger was kindled against David, verse number 28. Probably for years, Eliab had looked down on his brother the way that Asher and Simeon and Judah looked down on Joseph in his house so many years earlier. But Eliab's attitude turned even more sour in the preceding chapter. The prophet Samuel had been sent by God to anoint the future king of Israel from among the sons of Jesse. Seven of the sons of the family were gathered before him, and Samuel's eye automatically fell on Eliab. And yo, know, old Eliab just kind of puffed up. "Oh, oh, God wants me to be king of Israel." Ah, this is something. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature. The Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. What the Lord saw in Eliab didn't impress him. He was an ordinary, essentially faithless Christian who only went through the motions of his religion. He was too full of himself to think of anyone but himself. He was no servant of God. He wouldn't have been a better king than Saul was. They were very much alike. Of the seven sons of Jesse, the Holy Spirit didn't reveal the future king. And Samuel was confused. He had told Jesse to gather all his sons up. And the king wasn't there. The future king was not there. So Samuel asked if there was another son in the family. Well, there he is. But even Jesse didn't think much of David. Ah, oh, I have another one. He's out there taking care of the sheep. Probably staying warm with a lamb around his neck. David was so little thought of by his family that he wasn't even invited to meet God's prophet. But the great man of God insisted that David be summoned. And when he was brought in from his sheepfold, the Lord told Samuel, this is the future king of Israel. And David was anointed to replace Saul. The point is... Not even David's father gave him much thought or hope for success in his adult life. But Eliab, knowing that David has been anointed, probably hated him from that moment on. Now Eliab is accusing his brother of pride. What shall be done to the man that killeth the Philistine? This is David's question. What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I have read and reread that question and I can't find any pride in the question. None. Obviously, there can be a great deal of pride in serving the Lord. Particularly when Eliab, Saul, and so many others are not serving the Lord, look what I'm doing. I'm serving God. Pride is a potential problem. On the other hand, there can also be a charge of pride which is not justified. Let me apply a little test. I hesitate to do so for a couple of reasons. Would you think me, full of pride, if I told you that one of the, the brethren and I were here at the church yesterday at 7 a.m. praying and beseeching the Lord for his blessing on you? Is that, is that pride? You might accuse me of pride in saying that, but I assure you that there is no pride there. The truth is, I didn't intend to mention it at all, but I needed an illustration for this point in my message, and and there it was. There is no pride in David's question is there not a cause? Mm. There is a cause. There was no pride in understanding that we need God's blessings. Praying for those blessings is not something to be proud of, it's something that we should do. David hadn't yet volunteered to bring Goliath down when Eliab made this false accusation of pride. It's not pride to yearn for the blessing of God. None of us deserve the blessing of God. It's not necessarily pride to want to be used by God and be a part of God's work. It's not pride to expect the Lord to do great things, even if he does those great things through us. It wasn't pride when David said, This day the Lord will deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee. It was nothing but the confidence of faith. It's going to happen. But I see that there might not be a very big step between this and what appears to be pride. Eliab might have thought he saw pride in his youngest brother, but he was wrong. What I like about David's faith, and what I wish we all possessed, was his humble boldness. Let no man's heart fail because of this giant. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. This day the Lord will deliver thee, Mr. Philistine, into mine hand. There is a God in Israel, and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with fear, a sword, or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When David met him, Goliath was probably seated on a good-sized boulder, just waiting for something to happen. He arose and came and drew nigh to meet David. And David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Verse 48. God's servant then reached into the pouch and pulled out a stone, placing it in his sling. And he slung it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sunk into his forehead. He fell upon his face to the earth, probably knocked out, perhaps dying. Then David drew out the giant's heavy sword and dispatched the Philistines, grand champion, sending him into eternity. Secular historians might have said that things really worked out quite well for David that day. The sun was in the giant's eyes, couldn't spot this little uh, flea down there on the ground in front of him. He may have nodded off while he was sitting there on that stone under the heat of the sun. He just not, not all that alert when David came toward him. They might have said that over the years David trained himself to accurately use the sling even while running. Probably true. He may have driven away a dozen wolves and other predators that attacked his sheep using this, this sling. And then David was small and agile, agile, making Goliath hesitant to throw his one spear at this moving target. The unbelieving historians of Israel might have credited David with various human skills to create that great victory that day. But David himself placed the credit where the credit was due, right on the Lord, yes. firmly on the Lord. David attacked the giant not with skill, Not with big weapons, but in the name of the Lord, with the authority of Jehovah. And that was the primary reason that God stepped in and blessed the young man's effort. It was done in faith for the glory of the Lord. Not for David, not even for Israel. It was done for the Lord, the glory of the Lord. Again, this is what we need. We need victory in our lives. Our church needs revival of the power of God. Post Falls needs to feel the moving of the Holy Spirit. And not just one church, but a dozen churches. Christianity generally needs to see the power of God once again. But we are not going to see any of this if you and I don't learn to trust God, putting Him first in all that we do, and particularly first in our service for him. We need to risk ourselves the way David risked his life that day for the glory of the Lord. It matters not whether he thought he was risking his life or not. He was. If we will step out the way David did into the path of Goliath's spear, we too will see giants fall. They may not be nine-footers, they only be seven footers. But we need to see giants come down. And we can. We trust the Lord and put ourselves out there. We, we yearn to see lost souls come to Christ. We want to see God's churches and this church strengthened. And we can. We will. If we, like David, commit ourselves to the glory of the Lord and put ourselves out there. Amen. Please stand up.